As more and more major brands are looking to shift ad dollars to podcast and digital audio channels, there's a heightened interest in understanding how impactful these channels are to the bottom line. In a recent case study, a national home furnishing retailer turned to two partners to help solve this challenge. SXM Media and Claritas collaborated to provide an innovative, integrated set of solutions to effectively launch podcast campaigns and accurately measure the impact those campaigns had across all key KPIs, including the incremental lift in website engagements and purchase conversions. For more information, visit claritas.com case studies. Welcome to Great Minds, and our guest today is a longtime friend, Dina Myers. Dina is the head of new markets and business development for Lighthouse Immersive. Lighthouse is best known for, in my mind, you'll tell me if I'm right or wrong, Dina, from the incredible uh, immersive Van Gogh experience, but that is only one of many. I'm thrilled to get a chance to have you here on, on Great Minds, so welcome, Dina. Thank you. It's great to be here. And uh, it's a good excuse to chit chat with an old pal. You got it. You got it. It's the best part of this. So let's dial the clock back, Dina. I don't remember if this is when we met or not, but I always associate you with a performer who's still going strong today. And that's the incredible Andrea Bocelli. And I know many years ago you started there, and I'd love to get your reflections going back to your tenure with Gelb, uh, an incredible uh, figure in our industry. I'm excited we're going to see John Kamen's movie about Ron Delsner next week at Tribeca, another incredible figure. But can we talk about uh, that early experience, which goes back about 25 years? Sure, absolutely. And I'll just give you the quick um, intro of what preceded that because it's relevant um, and sort of how my career got started. I, I had I had really always uh, been involved in, in the performing arts as a performer um, during my youth. And uh, when I when I got to college, I made this very astute um, observation about my talent level, and that was I was pretty good at everything, but not great enough to have a career as a performer, which I think many of us on this side of the business had that realization at one point. Um, but I decided I did want to work on, on making magic happen. Um, and I moved to New York uh, in 1994, and I worked for a company called Columbia Artist Management um, and worked on international touring companies of ballets, ballet companies and, and orchestras when they toured the performing arts circuit in the United States, which was a great intro into the business side of the arts and led me into my first really big gig, which preceded Andrea Bocelli. And that was working for a German promoter named Matthias Hoffman on the Three Tenors World Tour in the mid 90s. So that is where I actually cut my teeth. And I think it was an extraordinary opportunity for a number of reasons. Primarily, um, this was before the live entertainment industry had become so conglomeratized. And probably the last time an independent promoter 
put on a world tour in stadiums. That just wouldn't happen in 2023. It probably wouldn't have happened anytime in the last 20 years. But given that uh, sort of um, gumption of that promoter and the opportunity I had to jump in very early, I really learned every single aspect of the business um, at a very young age. And that is, you know, the, the booking and the promoting and the PR and the uh, logistics and the operations and the sponsorship and all of the above, not to mention the artists uh, handholding and egos and so on and so forth. Um, and it was extraordinary playing in stadiums all over the world. I was a 22, 23 year old kid tour managing this massive operation uh, where we had literally each tenor in his own private jet with his own entourage, plus an orchestra of 60 people and a crew of, you know, more uh, orchestra of 100 people and a crew of 60 people. And we were going from Tokyo to Munich to London to New York to Vancouver. And, um, and, and really just, I stopped and never stopped working 24 seven um, for those few years of my life. And, and that was really where, where it got started um, until the great Matthias Hoffman got uh, nabbed for tax evasion by the German government and went to jail. Um, and that was happening a, a lot in those days. He was around the same time of Steffi Graf's father. And uh, and it was after that that I, I got to know the Gelbs, Frank Gelb of the father and son team, uh, the, the Gelb promoters who have been working with Andrea Bocelli, as you said, for well over 25 years. I met Frank on that three tenors experience because he had been a long time associate of Pavarotti's and had presented Pavarotti in Atlantic City. So they, they, they were tangentially involved in the three tenors in that we did a pay-per-view deal of the then called Giant Stadium, the Giant Stadium three tenors show. Um, and that's how I got to know Frank and then his son, Bruce. And, um, and Bruce approached me after having, um, gone to Italy and met, meeting with Andrea and signing a deal with him and knowing that I had this experience in the very niche genre of classical crossover touring and asked me to come be a part of their organization. And that was just one of the best, um, best opportunities of my life, because not only was I working with an extraordinary artist um, for all those years with Andrea Bocelli, but with an extraordinary, extraordinary family in uh, Frank and Bruce Gelb, who really did become like family to me and remain to this day. Uh, well, so such a good story. And I'm so glad you went back uh, and walked us through uh, the three tenors piece of your career as a 22, 23 year old managing that. It's easy to forget just how big that was. It was massive. I mean, to, to show up in Tokyo, uh, which was the first stop in that tour, and we played, I think, 80,000 people in Tokyo, and and the, the royal family were, were in, in the audience, and to see all our signage and logos in, in Japanese, and uh, it, was, it was a very... Um, just remarkable experience. It was an interesting time in the global economy. Uh, this is 94, 95, 96, where um, this would be sort of sweet spot for you to remember. 
there was a lot of sponsorship dollars being thrown around. Um, so we were, we had, you know, the airline sponsors and the hotel sponsors and the title sponsors and, and the, and the VIP opening sponsors. And, uh, there was a lot of cash, <laughs> a lot of suitcases, suitcases of cash as, as it were. And, um, and a lot of really important corporations that wanted to be associated with that tour specifically, because unlike most stadium tours, um, prior to that date and and really probably until today uh, ex with the exception of people who go see the rolling stones the audience of the three tenors was significantly older than traditional audiences who attended rock and roll concerts in 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 stadiums and had a pretty high net worth so we were lexus in one market mercedes in another market bmw in another market we had all these high-end luxury brands vying to be a part of that tour. And uh, um, the great late Jay Coleman um, was fielding all, a lot of offers for us and, and, and nailed down some pretty significant deals um, in this country. And we worked with other folks internationally, but um, yes, it was, it was a heady experience for sure. One of the reasons why I was looking forward to this conversation with you, Dina, is we know a lot of the same people. And uh, one of the things that I lament in business today is the absence of these huge personalities who we were lucky enough to know, in many cases, work for and with. You talk about Matthias Hoffman, you know, having a little trouble with the law. You know, I remember one who always struck me who I didn't know, but I just love the story of Garth Drabinsky the Canadian uh, Cineplex Odeon Scion, who built that magnificent theater that is now where Harry Potter performs, um, but originally was built by him. Ragtime was the first production in there. The theater was stunning. It was too big to ever really work. I think everything that went in there didn't do well. Spider-Man, Young Frankenstein, and he was later banned from coming to the US, may still be banned from coming to the US. Talk about those, that early exposure to some of these iconic personalities, which in today's world, we don't really have as much of anymore. It's hard to have those kind of personalities when everything it, it exists in such a corporate structure. But I think you're right. Uh, a funny story about, about Garth Drabinsky after the three tenors, both myself and uh, and the managing director of the New York office for that operation, Michael Samplina, who you probably also know, were recruited by Garth and he flew us up to Toronto um, separately and, and we had meetings with him and interviews with him. And then he ended up getting banned right about that time and, and nothing ever came of it. But he was a larger than life personality. Uh, the greats like Ronnie Delsner, who's still going, by the way, as you know, and you said you're going to see this film about him. Um, boy, I had some crazy run-ins with him over the years. Um, uh, Bruce Glotman was another uh, promoter from that day. I think he's almost 90 now, who I spoke to a couple weeks ago, still wearing his Willie Nelson style uh, ponytail and, and probably smoking some Willie Nelson uh, style weed, too. Um, these folks were were really what drew me into the business in a lot of ways. Um, the stories of the Bill Grahams of the world and uh, and and the lure around the Ron Delsners of the world. It made it interesting. 
Now, it certainly wouldn't cut the mustard in 2023 in terms of a lot of the behaviors that went on. And certainly there was a lot of uh, sexism and misogyny and, and other things that are, are not too palatable in, in, in the lenses we now wear. But um, they did have great personalities and made the business a lot of fun at that time and day. Yeah, I think the real parallels to the advertising and media industry where you had these incredibly charismatic personalities. And one of the things that we've seen, and I think, you know, that evolution of digital has to some degree depersonalized an awful lot of that and a lot of the charisma and the charismatic people, um, still many, but those big personalities today that we see there that we saw in the live entertainment business, fewer and, and far between. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and you know, to the, and that's probably to the benefit of the business, but also there's some soul that uh, that has gone away with that as well. I think so too, and not to romanticize uh, criminals, of course. So um, anything come to mind? You had such a great run with Bocelli. He was so enormous following on the heels of the three tenors still working today. We saw him last year. I think he was one of the performers at the Clive Davis show in, in Central Park. That must have been really memorable for you. You were also still in your 20s. I was indeed. And uh, yes, I think there was something really remarkable about how audiences responded to him in an emotional way that I've never seen prior or since. Um, partially due to the vulnerability of his sightlessness um, and partially due to the fact that he was this, you know, he was a lawyer and then got discovered in a Pavarotti song competition and, and, and just burst onto the international stage with such fame. Um, and partially because he sings a lot of the, uh, the old um, Italian Neapolitan songs that, for folks who come from that ethnic background, it just really, really resonates. But we never got tired, Bruce and, and myself, of standing in the wings and, and seeing literally grown men weep uh, during the, the last couple numbers and the encores. And um, and people dressed up to come see him and and brought their mothers and their wives and, and really, really became uh, an emotional concert going experience as opposed to just a good night out and that was wonderful to be a part of and really i mean that's part of what gives me the most enthusiasm about having had this career in the live entertainment industry well predominantly live entertainment until i verged into immersive is just being part of bringing those moments to fruition that magic that happens between a performer and an audience in any given size venue on any given night that is something that will never go away despite all, all the digital and technological um, innovation, innovations that we see happening, you know, with more rapidity every day. Yeah, I think the common thread to your career, Dina, is you understood um, how to package that emotion and how to make it work as a business and that human connection. And you see the reaction today that people have when they go to one of the Lighthouse Immersive shows. And that is a different reaction. I don't think you see the tears that you do at Bocelli, but you see an emotional reaction. And that's a very big part of, I think, 
you know, what you've been able to do so successfully for so many years. Well, thank you for noticing that. I'd, I'd like to say it was by design um, that the happy accident of having worked now uh, with Lighthouse Immersive going on for almost three years actually draws back to the Bocelli days. I'll give you a little backstory. Um, the first time we brought Andrea Bocelli to Canada and played what was then called the Air Canada Centre in Toronto, we were introduced to a, a local promoter named Corey Ross, who he and I are the same age. Uh, he had his own little shop called Starbucks Entertainment. And we engaged him to do the local marketing and promotions of the, that first Bocelli Canadian date. And he and I stayed in touch over the years. And uh, he is now um, Corey Ross, co-founder and president of Lighthouse Immersive. Um, when, um, when I was sitting at home teaching my son virtually in homeschool during the pandemic and had my normal industry completely shut down for quite a long time, and he started having a little early success with this immersive Van Gogh in Canada and wanted to expand to the U.S. and rang me up out of the blue, really first to talk about uh, New York venues and, and uh, where this kind of thing might work in New York, but quickly transitioned into a conversation about how I thought I could help him grow and scale the business as a business development executive. And uh, and and here I am. So uh, all kudos to Andrea Bocelli um, for making me have that special experience with Corey in 1999. And then that translating to him bringing me on board to help build and grow Lighthouse Immersive. Let's talk about another little part of your journey, which I remember as well. And that was something you did in a very different genre around Democracy Plaza at Rock Center. Very memorable. I think one of the things we're seeing now in New York is a real renaissance. Uh, and New York's always been dominated by big, big real estate companies, Scions. I love what's happening now, our neighborhood, whereby Madison Square Garden, what Fornado is now rebranding as the Penn District. Uh, and we've not yet announced it, but Advertising Week will be in this area in the fall. And uh, we've seen what Related has done with Hudson Yards on the far west side, where we were in 21. We had a wonderful uh, evening out. My friend Marissa, who's the CMO of Union Square Hospitality, one of their new places in Manhattan West, uh, which is a Brookfield development. You worked for the one that really pioneered in many ways the use of creative public spaces for big events. And that was Tishman Spire when they bought Rockefeller Center uh, from, it was Mitsubishi, I think, that they bought it from at a, for a song. It was, uh, they had bought it, the Japanese had bought it from the Rockefeller family at a very high price and then sold it at a relatively low price uh, to Jerry Spire and then ultimately Rob and Tishman Spire. But I'd love to go back and tell the tale of Democracy Plaza, which was also about, about 20 years ago. That was a great, great, great time and a really unique experience. It's the first time I had uh, gone out on my own to work as a freelancer or an independent uh, contractor or producer and was very lucky to uh, find that opportunity. Um, they made the decision, having had, uh, they meaning Tishman's Fire, having had um, uh, some 
having had NBC broadcasting from their obviously iconic location there, of wanting to do something a little different surrounding the election coverage in 2004. And that was to actually put the map of the United States and color it in blue and red on election night on the actual ice rink um, at Rock Center. And so that idea actually fueled the idea for Democracy Plaza, which I was brought on board to actually help build and, and grow and oversee and produce. And what it became was really a, a number of things. Number one, it was a broadcast center. So every entity within the NBC family, within the NBC family delivered their election coverage in the weeks leading up and on night of the 2004 presidential election with these specially built booths surrounding the ice skating rink. So you had NBC, CNBC, MSNBC, WNBC, the local channel, as well as Telemundo, all centralized around the rink delivering their election coverage, which was pretty darn cool. The other component um, was actually to build something that told the history of democracy in, in America in sort of an exhibition style venture. And so we we tented part of the plaza and I worked with a curator from the New York Historical Society to pull together all these different pieces that represented both the history of the American presidency and how democracy works in America. The most exciting piece of that, well, two, one was we got a replica of Air Force One sourced from a museum in Branson, Missouri, that we what we drove up in the middle of the night, almost got stuck in the Lincoln Tunnel with it. It was an actual 747 airplane and had it decked out in, in the plaza so people could go into Air Force One and feel what it must have felt like to be on that plane with Ronald Reagan in the 80s. But we also went to Norman Lear, who the great television producer, who owned an original copy of the Declaration of Independence, and he agreed to loan it to us. And we propped it up right in the middle of the plaza in a very um, protected case, which was taken to Tiffany's at night and locked in their vault. And people from all across the tri-state area came and were actually able to see with their own eyes an original copy, copy of the Declaration of Independence, which was really moving for a lot of folks. And the third piece of that project was in partnership with Scholastic, a real educational component where we bust in school children from all around the region to learn about democracy in America. And we had wonderful sponsors. I think Bank of America was the title sponsor, a wonderful partnership with, with um, Scholastic. And it was really envisioned to help drive foot traffic to the shops and to uh, everything around, um, you know, the real estate there. But it became something much more significant than that. And now it's the custom that we watch the 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 states colored into the ice every year on election night. So that's pretty cool. And actually, during my um, latter part of my career, pre um Lighthouse Immersive, when I worked for about eight years as an independent contractor and a freelancer and a consultant, this kind of niche of combining um, entertainment and real estate became part of my bread and butter. I, I did a, a stint for Related at the Time Warner Center, where I helped uh, create uh, a jazz series there in partnership with Jazz at Lincoln Center, again, to help drive foot traffic to their retail, but became its own thing. 
Um, I did some work with Forest City Ratner when they were trying to go after um, the rights to the Long Island arena. And so the, the, the combination of, of real estate and entertainment um, and sponsorship is really interesting and uh, makes a lot of sense for all the obvious reasons. Absolutely fantastic. And, and more than a niche, it's become a core competency. And you were sort of way ahead of the game there in many respects. Yeah, little did I know, uh, but yeah, it, it, it makes a lot of sense, especially in a city like New York, for sure, where driving foot traffic is, you know, is bread and butter, especially when retail has gone through all its ups and downs. And I think, you know, post-COVID, it's it's more important than ever. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. I think you're going to continue to see the big players and smaller ones try to use their spaces creatively and in different ways. Uh, great, great stuff. So let's talk a little bit about, you had a great run at AEG when they were relatively young in their uh, history. Like today in Live Nation, AEG, dominant players, not just in America, but globally. But you were there as director of special projects sort of early on. Yeah, that was a, a really neat time to be at that company. Um, it was, you know, Coachella was just becoming profitable. It hadn't been the juggernaut uh, that it has now become. Uh, it was a great opportunity to live in Los Angeles and really get to know that city and and develop contacts and, and my network there that remains super important to who I am as a professional. Um, and it was really, really interesting to be a part of a company on the cusp of that enormous growth. Uh, you made mention that they've become sort of the next biggest in, in the world uh, next to Live Nation as a live entertainment presenter. But it was unique in that they're they're privately held. So they didn't have the same pressures uh, in terms of corporate governance that a Live Nation did. And ultimately, if it made Phil and I, reference Phil Anschutz, if it made Phil happy, it was a go, whether or not it necessarily made sense um, financially. So that was, uh, I think, a really rarefied experience to be uh, in an organization that was growing so quickly and becoming so well known, uh, as you mentioned, across the globe, but that could operate a little bit differently than its competitors. Um, I worked for John Meglin, who was a great influence on my career. Uh, and at, at that time, he was the one who was focused on uh, redefining the headliner show in Las Vegas for a new era and uh, launching that with Celine Dion and then Elton John. And we had a residency with Seinfeld as well. So a lot of time spent in Las Vegas. But I also worked on things that were new areas of growth for AEG and pre predominantly comedy, um, which they had not uh, forayed into prior to my time there. And it was a little bit outside of the core competency, but we did quite a bit. We did a number of concert tours, I mean, comedy tours. Uh, we had the Comedy Festival in Las Vegas, originally in partnership with HBO and then uh, eventually with, uh, with uh, TBS. And um, I did a great a custom built uh, comedy tour for a brand actually, which was a new model, a no risk model for AEG, which promoters love when you uh, can pull something off that doesn't involve any financial risk. It was for the Jameson Irish Whiskey comedy tour um, that I worked on with Andrew Klein, who I think we also know in common. Um, 
and it was a really successful program that ran for about three years, uh, worked with a lot of then up and coming uh, comics who are now big names, Billy Gardell, notably, uh, who's now a sitcom superstar, but it was a lot of fun. Um, and I, I probably would have stayed out there um, had my family not been calling me back to the East Coast. But I feel like my second home is Los Angeles now, having had that experience living there. And um, I get back there very often. Uh, I was there a week ago. I'm going again two weeks. So I, I always look up my AEG friends when I'm in town. So you are in so many ways a young old soul and remind me of you know, that opening scene in Broadway, Danny Rose, when all the old managers are sitting around and, and one of the lines in that, you know, great, great old film is, you know, he always made a beautiful dollar in this business. And you're someone who has always figured it out. You've worked with some of the biggest names in the business, uh, historically and present day. You've worked for some of the biggest companies, not only in the entertainment business, but in related businesses like real estate. Uh, and you had a really successful tenure as your own producer and consultant, doing all kinds of great things over a long period of time. That takes a little bit of a different constitution. Talk about that, Dina, navigating, you know, between you got that paycheck coming every two weeks and you've got that other scenario, which I've had as well throughout my career, where, you know, if you don't go to the supermarket and find something at the price you can afford, you might go hungry that night. It's a hustle. And you're right. It is not for the faint of heart. It is not for everyone. Um, the last full-time job I had was working for Michael Cole. And I did that for, for S2BN Entertainment, his current company, for about three years after I moved back from the West Coast, having worked for AEG. And uh, it was a real inspiration to work for him, someone I always had admired and looked up to. But um, I was working on um, largely family entertainment, um, things that didn't necessarily connect with me in a deep way and working harder than ever. And I just realized, you know, at that point I was in my mid thirties, I don't have any piece of the action. You know, I'm, I'm in Buffalo with how to train your dragon live. I'm, it's not quite as sexy as Andrea Bocelli, uh, no offense to DreamWorks animation. Um, and, uh, you know, at some point I'd like to have a family and, uh, I, I gotta kind of reprioritize. So I did decide to make that leap and go out to work for myself. Um, and I did very fortunately become a late in life mom. I'm, um, I'm a 51 year old woman with a nine year old son. So, um, trying to, trying to stay young, um, and he keeps me young, but, um, you know, the, having, the time to work for myself really allowed me to choose projects and um, carve out time to be with him, especially when he was very young and, uh, you know, and do things that interested me that I could continue to learn from and, and grow with, um, as well as um, kind of veer a little bit away from things that, that I'd been doing. Um, you know, I think people tend to get pigeonholed and do the same thing for their whole career and especially if it comes with a regular paycheck and just didn't feel like that was me. Uh, partially, maybe the world didn't put that 
in front of me and partially maybe I, I didn't choose that for myself, but um, I've really thrived on going on to having new experiences and, and um, trying new things. But, you know, there are times when it's been very, very challenging to, to your point. I mean, keeping the money coming in with any sort of regularity, um, getting up and realizing no one's paying your health insurance. You got to be making enough to cover that, too, um, plus plus all the others. So um, I'm glad I did it. And uh, and I'm still doing it to some extent now. I mean, I'm not exclusive to Lighthouse Immersive, although it's been the majority of what I've, of what I've spent my time doing over the past three years. Um, and once you work for yourself, it's kind of hard to envision working for anyone else, although I wouldn't rule it out, but it's, it's been really nice to kind of design my own career. You know, you mentioned Michael Cole, another huge name and personality in the business. There aren't a lot of people who can talk about, you know, John Meglin, talk about the Gelbs, Michael. We certainly know a lot of the same folks uh, who were aggregated, you know, by Robert Sellerman to build what would become Live Nation. AEG also a lot of their growth through acquisition. Go looking back, you've got to have some pretty funny reflections about all of these characters, and I think there's a book in there somewhere, Dina. You know, my husband always says to me, that's another one for the memoirs. So perhaps someday uh, when I have uh, a little bit of uh, more time to reflect and hopefully I'll, I'll collect a lot more mem memories. As I said, I'm only 51. But yes, I, I certainly have been privy to some wild behind the scenes moments and some really outsized personalities and not not always easy or comfortable as a woman. Um, you know, the industry has certainly made a lot of improvements in terms of what's acceptable and what's not. Um, I, I think that if I had a daughter and had a knowledge of, of of sending her into the workplace with some of the things I saw slash put up with, it would quite upset me. And yet, on the other hand, um, perhaps because I have a certain kind of constitution, uh, it, it has uh, those kind of experiences have helped shaped me. And I think um, having had agency about myself and what was OK and what was not OK and being cool with putting that out there, um, I came out pretty unscathed. But um, and I don't mean to insinuate that any of those names I mentioned were doing anything untoward, just not. Uh, corporate um, behavior yeah. in, in 20. Very different culture. Absolutely. So you already sort of gave us the backstory and with Corey going back to 1999, but let's get into Lighthouse Immersive. That genre is absolutely exploding right now. And it really started with Corey and what they put together for Van Gogh, I guess, initially, as you said, out of Canada, you very kindly hosted my family and I when Van Gogh was down in the old Dole Banana Pier, uh, all the way downtown uh, in New York. Uh, must have been three, four years ago. Was it three, four? Not quite. It was twenty twenty one. Okay, so not so uh, not quite, but uh, very memorable. We absolutely loved it, and that genre is absolutely taking off. Talk about Lighthouse Immersive, the growth trajectory. Uh, you're in just about every market now, but you're developing new business for them, not only here, but globally. 
Talk about that genre of immersive experience and why do you think that has had such resonance with, with the public? Sure. So uh, just a little bit more to Lighthouse Immersive's origin story. Um, you know how I got into the mix, but he co-founded the company with a, another Canadian presenter, a woman named Svetlana Dvoretsky of Russian Heritage, who had primarily been a classical presenter. And she and Corey had known each other over the years and collaborated on a few things. And she was in Paris and saw a very early version of what became our Immersive Van Gogh show and was blown away by it and said, Corey, you got to go over to Paris and see this, which he did. And they together thought, wow, this kind of projection mapping show has been around in Europe, but no one's done it across the pond. And so they decided to partner and they went to the creator of that show, an Italian uh, projection mapping artist who's sort of the father of the business named Massimiliano Sicardi, and asked him if he'd create sort of a bigger, bolder, lengthier show, uh, and if he'd come work for them. And they did in fact sign him to a 10-year contract. He's exclusive to Lighthouse, but Lighthouse is not exclusive to him. And he created this incredible show, which they launched in Toronto right before the pandemic. And uh, Immersive Van Gogh immediately wowed audiences and then immediately had to shut down. <laughs> and so Corey, uh, as it was being presented in the old Toronto Star Building in Toronto, uh, which had a loading dock, had the idea of doing drive-in. And as far as we know, he was the very first presenter in the world to present entertainment in this drive-in format. So it got a lot of press. People were writing about this, but you know, the AP picked it up and it was reported in, in you know, Asia and South America and Europe. It really became a big news story early in the pandemic. And then eventually people were able to come and walk through and social and see it socially distanced. But Corey and Svetlana uh, made the astute observation <laughs> given how Canada as a government was handling the pandemic, we'll probably be able to get in more markets and roll this out if we move down uh, to the United States more quickly. So they opened up soon after in Chicago and then San Francisco and then New York. And with each market, we found that very quickly there were copycat versions on our heels uh, because um, Van Gogh is in the public domain. And so a lot of other uh, creators started trying to figure out, hey, how can we get a part, become a part of this phenomenon? I think uh, it's no secret that ours was certainly the best, not just according to, to, to me, but many critics, according, according to the New York Times, certainly got the most attendance. Um, I think we had about 60, 70% of the market share and sold so many tickets. Uh, we, we calculated that maybe roughly one in 65 or 70 Americans saw our immersive bingo. So it certainly became a cultural phenomenon. And I think for a number of reasons, one, it was during the pandemic and there was something so soothing and meditative and comforting and inspiring about the paintings of Van Gogh, the fact that he was someone that suffered from mental health issues when we were all suffering on, on, on some level. And the fact that it was uh, at a time when there were no other offerings, right? You couldn't go to the movies, you couldn't go to a concert and we figured out, figured out a way to do it where you could be socially distanced with masks and walk through and uh, people were comfortable enough to do that. 
And so it just kind of broke through and touched people in a very, very significant way. And, and to your point, became a real cultural phenomenon. Um, and so we've moved forward with lots of other content. We've presented other art shows that Massimiliano has created for us, immersive Monet and the Impressionists, immersive Gustav Klimt, immersive Frida Kahlo. We've also done things that are not art specific. We did an immersive King Tut show celebrating 100 years of the since the uh, discovery of the tomb of King Tut. And uh, we're now rolling out what we think is going to be our greatest hit of all time. Um, and we really did decide we didn't want people copying us anymore. So let's not keep going with this public domain stuff. Let's go with protected IP. And we went for the big one and we got it. Um, so we are currently rolling out Disney, immersive Disney animation experience in all of our venues uh, and globally as well. It's now open in Tokyo. Um, so it's been very exciting working with Disney and the first time we've utilized uh, live action as opposed to still images in this immersive projection mapping format and people are really responding well to it. And it's a, a truly a family audience, obviously. Um, and we're, you know, we're very proud of the fact that we got Disney to entrust us with their brand. And I think that further solidifies Lighthouse Immersive as being really the the, the preeminent and dominant um, pre presenter and promoter of this form of entertainment um, in in the whole landscape right now. But there's lots of other kinds of immersive. I mean, we we're focused pre predominantly in projection mapping, but you see all other types of immersive experiences and presenters. I mean, there's Meow Wolf, there's Super Blue, they're doing very different but creative things. Um, there, there are folks like Netflix who have gotten in the game and created immersive experiences surrounding some of their hit shows like Bridgerton, there's the Queen's Ball experience, there's a Stranger Things experience. So I think people recognize that um, audiences, particular young, particular particularly younger audiences are looking for experiences that are truly immersive, a little bit different than a passive audience experience of, sit, of, of attending a concert. Um, and that does usually incorporate some sorts of technology. Um, I think it's here to stay. I think the marketplace is a little too crowded right now um, because so many people jumped in so quickly. And I think over the next year or two, we'll see things start to settle a little bit and, uh, and dominant players kind of taking their place. Um, but it has been very, very exciting to be a part of this wave and, uh, and with the future sort of unknown as to how it shakes out from here. Great, great story. Let's dig a little deeper on something. It's a, it's a little bit off the beaten path for us, but you mentioned public domain versus IP. And I think one of the things that uh, uh, people didn't understand necessarily, um, there were all these, I'll use the word knockoff, of your Van Gogh experience. Uh, talk about that and that decision. Uh, obviously, if you're not paying anybody for the property, make a little bit more money, but you create a level of exposure for yourself as you learn the hard way. 
Exactly right. So anything that's been in, in the public domain, um, or any any creator that's been deceased for over a hundred years, their artwork or music or whatever it may be is considered in the public domain, and so you do not need to pay a license fee or or secure rights from anyone in order to make something utilizing that content or or artwork. So um, Van Gogh, uh, obviously one of the most popular artists in in the world and um, having had enormous success out of the gate with our immersive Van Gogh shows, we noticed a lot of other folks jumping into the game and, and with titles that were so similar to ours, it sort of confused the marketplace. I mean, when we were in New York, the show you saw, we were the uh, um, the immersive Van Gogh, the original immersive Van Gogh. And then there was another one on the other side of town called Van Gogh, the immersive experience. So people would often try to buy tickets to what they thought was our show, but end up at the other show. And it was it was very confusing. And we had the exact same thing with with uh, Monet. We had the same thing, believe it or not, with Gustav Klimt, who's not exactly a household name to the average American. But it became clear people were just on our heels trying to copy what we were doing because we had such success with Van Gogh. And so around that time, when we really started thinking, let's let's work let's work in um, a medium that we know we're going to be able to own. Let's get some content that no one's going to be out there in the market competing with us competing against us with. And so um, we we began an association with a guy named Miles Dale, who's an Academy Award-winning producer, longtime collaborator of Guillermo del Toro's, won the Academy Award for The Shape of Water, who had a deal with Disney and uh, another Toronto guy, um, friendly with Corey. And he said, you know, I, I think I can help you get a deal done with Disney. And we thought, okay, great, that's everyone's dream, but we also know that they notoriously take their time and we want to get something in the market pretty quickly. And it's, you know, we don't want to have a two to three year negotiation. So what we had working in our favor was this year, 2023, is the 100th anniversary of the founding of Disney Animation. And so that's sort of what we pitched to them. You guys need to do something new and different and innovative to celebrate the 100th year. And that's coming up. Like, let us do this with you. So it's not quite as simple as that. There was lots of diligence, lots of negotiation, and we were working very, very, very closely with them to make sure that the product that is now in market was up to their standards. Um, they were involved every step of the way, um, but we got it done and in record time and, and audiences are really responding to it. So in two weeks, we're opening uh, that show in Los Angeles. We're in 14 markets now. And everyone is, is a little bit a flutter about that because we'll be under the very watchful eye of uh, all the Disney brass, including uh, Mr. Iger himself, who we're expecting uh, to be an early visitor. Um, so the Disney team really wanted to make sure everything was perfect. And we have made some tweaks along the way since we first opened it in Toronto before Christmas last year. Um, but yeah, now we're ready for prime time, as it were. Yeah, absolutely great, great story. And will you be coming to New York as well? We are in the hunt for a venue in New York for Disney. Um, we're committed to getting to, to, to New York with Disney. Unfortunately, the venue you saw our immersive Van Gogh show in, we didn't have a long-term lease there. It was a pop-up. And I have probably looked at 
I don't know, three or four dozen properties in New York, it's very difficult to find the square footage we need with the ceiling height we need yeah. um, for a price that is affordable. Uh, you know, we're not we're not a blue chip company looking to build out an office tower. We're, we're you know, we're, we're limited to a, an average ticket price of, you know, 30, 40, 50 bucks. And, um, and we've got a lot of technology to bring in. So we can't quite afford these crazy lease prices that most uh, New York real estate um, owners are asking for, but we have not given up hope. I'm seeing another place uh, this week, actually. So on the hunt. Well, we are also familiar with that plight uh, because like you, you know, we're not enormous either. And we don't, we can't go into a place like the Javits Center. We're not hotel people. Ceiling height is critical. Um, we found another place for the fall. Um, you know, we're benefiting by the uh, poor state of the commercial real estate market. Uh, and our home at Hudson Yards a few years ago was the old Neiman Marcus, which went bust after a year. Our, our home last year was Essex Crossing. We looked, sorry to interrupt, but we we looked at the Neiman markets also. Right. We wanted to do a pop-up of our um, immersive nutcracker show over holiday last year, uh, but we didn't have the ceiling yeah. right there that we needed. Yeah, it's too low. Yeah, the related people were great, and we're still very, very close to them. I absolutely think there's a market. We should have a conversation separately. There's a market for a space that we could both use. And um, it is a big problem. And as part of a bigger company now, Emerald, which bought Advertising Week last year, it's an ongoing conversation because if you don't want to go to the Javits Center uh, and you know trigger all the expense from a labor vantage point, um, you don't have a lot of choices. And it's, it's just tough. Yeah. Great. Well, Dina, this was such a pleasure. I'm so glad we got a chance to catch up and do this. And I learned a whole bunch and uh, best of all, got to spend an hour or so with you. It was such a pleasure, Matt. And you know what? It's funny. You, you didn't give me any preparation. And some of those things like Democracy Plaza, I literally haven't spoken about in years. But it, it, it's, it was such a, a, a remarkable experience, as all of these things were in my career. The words just tumbled out of me, and that's probably a tribute to you being a great interviewer and a, a beautiful smiling face on the other end of the Zoom. Oh, so hardly. thank you for inviting me. Hardly. Let's catch up soon. ago, the ad revenue forecasts for podcast advertising were estimated to pass the $1 billion mark in 2023. But that actually happened in 2021. As both startup and mainstream brands flood dollars into podcast and digital audio advertising, many companies still struggle with how to accurately measure the impact these channels have on driving ROI. Claritas has emerged as a leader in helping brands, publishers, and agencies accurately measure attribution and the incremental lift podcasts and digital audio channels have on helping marketers drive success. Listen to their latest podcast to hear more about the current and future direction of these high-impact, yet still somewhat emerging channels. For more information, visit claritas.com slash claritas podcast.